Revelation chapter 11, and I know we've, just because of events, it's been a little bit of a break since we've been actually in the study of the text of Revelation, so I want to give you just a brief overview of what's brought us to where we're at. Of course, chapter 1 starts with John's personal vision of Jesus as he's exiled on the island of Patmos. Jesus comes and speaks to him and gives him a vision. And chapters 2 and 3 are the messages from Jesus to the seven churches that are in Asia Minor. And then in chapter 4, it starts to picture future things. In chapter 4, John receives a vision of heaven and the heavenly throne room. In chapter 5, that vision is expanded and there is a in the right hand of the one sitting on the throne, a, a scroll of God's plan for human history. And yet that scroll is sealed with seven seals that bind it. And only the lamb is able to take and to open that seal. In the words of the 24 elders that are seated around the throne at that scene, the lamb is worthy because they say, you are worthy to take the book and to open the seals of it, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every kindred and language and people and nation. And so from there, one by one, those seals start to be opened by the Lamb who is breaking those seals and opening this plan for uh, God's plan for human history. And they are bringing forth, every time one is opened, it brings forward some kind of judgment. The first seal's open and a, a, a rider on a white horse comes forward bent on conquest. And the second seal is opened. And when it's broken, a, a red horse with a rider comes on it who's bringing war. And the third seal introduces a rider on a black horse in a worldwide famine. The, the fourth seal brings forward a a pale or sickly looking horse and the rider brings all kinds of death. When the fifth seal is opened, it unveils the cry of Christian martyrs who are appealing for God's justice and the sixth seal brought earthquakes, this just devastating earthquakes and signs in heaven. And it also brings with it the cry of the, the wicked who want to escape the wrath of God. And then when the seventh seal was broken, silence falls and seven angels with seven trumpets come forward and they are prepared to start sounding at the Lamb's command. And then so in Revelation 8, those trumpets uh, begin to be sounded one at a time and the, the first trumpet sounded and it brings this fiery hail mixed with blood and it burns up a third of the plant life and the second trumpet sounded and a great burning mountain is cast into the sea destroying a third of the, the sea life and all the, the shipping. The third trumpet brings similar devastation to the fresh waters of the world. The fourth trumpet, when it sounds, brought destructive events to the sun, moon, and stars, right? And at that point in Revelation, this is chapter 8 and verse 13, it says, I beheld and I heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven, 
saying with a loud voice, woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth by reasons of the other voices of the trumpet of the three angels which are yet to sound. And so, in other words, after the fourth seal, such devastating judgments are coming that, um, I'm sorry, after the fourth trumpet, this devastating judgments are coming so that the last three trumpets are described as three woes. In Revelation 9, the, the fifth trumpet sounds and it releases what can only be fairly described as a demonic horde over all the earth. And afterward, in chapter 9, verse 12, it says, One woe is past and two more woes hereafter. The sixth trumpet sounds and with it comes an invading army sweeping over the world from the east, bringing horrific death and destruction and, and John actually has been giving us the math all along. And if we do the math, we find like half the earth's population has been destroyed by that point. And yet despite all of that destruction, Revelation 9 verses 20 and 21 says, The rest of the men which were not killed by these plagues, yet repented not of the works of their hands, that they should not worship devils and idols of gold and silver and brass and stone and of wood, which neither can see nor hear nor walk, neither repented they of their murders, nor their sorceries, nor their fornications, nor their thefts. Now, instead of immediately going to the seventh trump, John's vision got interrupted briefly with two short diversions. The first is in Revelation 10. There's this mighty angel that is towering over the earth, proclaiming in essence that the judgment of the world is not happening at the hands of those evil forces. It is in control of God's sovereign plan, and it's his will for history that's being unfolded. And the second diversion that John gives between the sixth and seventh trump is in the beginning of chapter 11. It tells of two witnesses standing in Jerusalem and declaring the word of God. And there are many who hear that message and do give glory to the God of heaven. But then, after those two side stories are complete, the vision picks right back up. You can see it, chapter 11, verse 14. The second woe is past, and behold, the third woe comes quickly. So that sixth trumpet, the second woe, is is done. And where we've left off, we're picking back up at verse 15, is we're waiting for that third woe, the seventh trumpet to sound. So let's read Revelation 11, starting at verse 15 through the end of the chapter. And the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the four and twenty elders which sat before God on their seats fell upon their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks, O Lord God Almighty, which art and wast and art to come, because thou hast taken to thee thy great power and hast reigned. And the nations were angry, and thy wrath is come in the time of the dead that they should be judged, and that thou shouldest give reward unto thy servants, the prophets, and to the saints, and to them that fear thy name, small and great, 
and shouldest destroy them which destroy the earth. And the temple of God was opened in heaven, and there was seen in his temple the ark of his testament, and there were lightnings and voices and thunderings and an earthquake and great hail. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do consider it a blessing and are thankful for the opportunity to be in this place where we've come to participate in the worship of our Savior. We ask, Lord, that you would be with us in this day, that you would bless the the reading and the declaration of your word according to your promise that it would accomplish your purpose. I ask, Lord, that you would look at our congregation and know the many needs that we have, those that we have on the prayer list of, uh, of those who are sick, those who are dying, those who need encouragement and guidance. And Lord, we know that we have needs that we don't even recognize ourselves, but you know, and we trust you with them. Please guide us as an assembly that we would seek to bring glory to you and to be servants of our King Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen. Back in the Gospels, when the disciples of the Lord asked for guidance, they asked Jesus to teach teach us how to pray. We don't even really know how to pray. And Jesus answered, when you pray, pray like this. And that prayer that he gives them, the Lord's Prayer, I think more accurately, the model prayer has become this well-memorized portion of God's Word. I assume that most of you can quote it this morning. In fact, I'm confident enough in that that I'm going to ask you to start saying the model prayer with me right now. Are you ready? Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, just stop there for a second. Not because you're not doing a good job. This morning, our text is pointing us clearly to the day when that prayer of all the disciples of Jesus for 20 centuries and counting at this point will be answered. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Listen to verse 15 again. The seventh angel sounded and there were great voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. This text is the culmination of the biblical promise that Jesus is king. This is that long-awaited day that Paul describes in Titus 2.13 as the the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. This text is the turning point of the book of Revelation. Everything now begins to just unfold quickly, just like when the, the seventh seal was opened and it brought on the sounding of these seven trumpets. When the seventh trumpet sounds, we're soon going to see that there's seven angels that come forward with vials or bowls of God's wrath to be poured out on the earth. And it's happening 
quickly. Though John's vision, in fairness, in the next chapters, is actually going to sort of rewind and take us back through that tribulation period from a different perspective. This seventh trumpet is the turning point, just as it has been promised to be the turning point. You may remember this from Revelation chapter 10, but you can look back at it if you want to. Revelation chapter 10, verse 7 says, In the days of the voice of the seventh angel, that's when the seventh trumpet sounds, In the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound, the mystery of God should be finished as he's declared to his servants the prophets. This seventh trumpet is the the final turning point. In this text, the Lord Jesus returns to reign as king over all the earth, bringing rejoicing to his servants, causing resentment among the wicked, and affirming the righteous purposes of God. Now we're going to walk through this text this morning in four main points. We're going to see the king is coming in verse 15. The king's servants rejoice in verses 16 and 17. The king's judgments are certain in verse 18. And the king's power is evident in verse 19. The king is coming. You know, sometimes when a a group gets up in church to sing a special or someone will will hit a note on the piano in order to sort of set everyone on the same key. The seventh trumpet sounds and it's almost like a pitch pipe for the heavenly choir that has been anxious to to break forward in this long-awaited hymn, this glorious declaration that the kingdom has come. Verse 15 says the seventh angel sounded and there were great voices in heaven saying the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. The announcement of this kingdom under the authority of Christ. Y'all, it seems like it is a long time coming. There is this Tension that has been built into the word of God purposefully about the ultimate fulfillment of this kingdom promise. If you remember, even the disciples of Jesus just before he ascended into heaven at the beginning of Acts, what were they asking him? They're looking at Jesus and they're they're asking him, is it now? Is now the time where you will restore a kingdom for Israel? They had seen that there was a promise of a kingdom for God throughout Scripture. And they had anxiously awaited its fulfillment. Don't underestimate how the Word of God has just layer upon layer built up this expectation. Let me just give you a, a few of many, many, many examples. Starting at the beginning, God's command to Adam was that Adam should rule over the earth, or in the words of Genesis, to have dominion. That's to have a domain, to have a a kingdom. He was to rule over the earth under the authority of God himself. But Adam sinned and rejected that perfect design, and Jesus has come in the flesh so he would defeat sin 
and establish that dominion over the earth under the authority of God. King David was promised that a distant son of David would come and establish his kingdom to rule and reign from his throne forever. The prophet Daniel. If you remember when we studied Daniel, Daniel interpreted for King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon this dream that Nebuchadnezzar had of this statue with all these different metals worked into the statue. There was a head of gold and a, a, a silver chest and arms, legs of iron, and, and, and on it went. And Daniel started to describe and explain that each of those represents one kingdom after another that's going to come throughout world history. But you remember what happened to that statue at the end of Nebuchadnezzar's dream? There was a stone, one that was clearly fashioned and shaped, and yet Daniel says it wasn't cut with human hands. And that stone streaks through the sky and it hits that statue and it, it crumbles to powder. And this is what Daniel told him that part of the vision meant. Daniel 2, verse 44 In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms. And it shall stand forever. Or how about an angel that came to a a virgin girl named Mary telling her, that you're going to conceive and you're going to have a son and you'll call him Jesus. He will be great. He will be known as the son of the highest and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and of his kingdom there will be no end. He will reign forever. No wonder the disciples looked at Jesus and pleaded with him for the answer. Is it now? Is now the time that you're going to establish God's kingdom on earth? And Jesus' answer back at Acts 1 was, was simply, it's not for you to know the times and the seasons. That time is in God's hands. You almost wonder if they could hear the echo of him teaching them to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's his kingdom, it's his authority. But when we come to Revelation chapter 11, verse 15, this seventh trumpet sounds and the heavenly chorus sings with one voice. It's now. The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Messiah and he will reign forever and ever. This is the day that Satan never wanted to see come. Think about this, when when Satan tempted Jesus back in the wilderness, one of those temptations was aimed directly at destroying this. Luke 4 tells us how Satan came to Jesus and one of those temptations showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and the devil said to him, all this power I will give you and the glory of them for it's delivered to me and I can give it to whoever I want. If you will worship me, all of it can be yours. Y'all, that was no empty offer. Satan is 
the prince of this world and its wicked kingdoms are under his control, he could have delivered on that promise. And he said, look, it's just that easy. Just worship me. You can have the kingdom without the cross. But the divine plan wasn't that the world would be ruled by Jesus under the authority of Satan. The divine plan wasn't to establish a world order without addressing the world's sin. The divine plan wasn't that Jesus would somehow come to agreeable terms with Satan and then be coronated as king. The divine plan was that the Lord Jesus would defeat sin, that he would crush Satan, that he would come and establish a kingdom of believers through the shedding of his blood on the cross. Thorns for his crown. And he stands in triumph and in victory over all the world. And at this time, he will reign forever and ever. The king's coming. We see the king's servants rejoice in verses 16 and 17. The four and twenty elders which sat before God on their seats fell upon their faces and worshipped God saying... We give thanks, O Lord God Almighty, which is and was and is to come, because you have taken to you your great power and have reigned. Now, we're first introduced to these 24 elders back earlier in Revelation 4 when John has that vision of the heavenly throne room. They're representative of all the people who are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, right? That's what they say of themselves. You've redeemed us by your blood out of every kindred and language and people and nation. And these elders, they're clothed in white and they had crowns of gold on their head, it says back in Revelation 4, although only briefly because soon they were casting those crowns before the one on the throne. And these elders have sort of pushed this vision of John forward at times, right? They've, they've asked him questions or they've pleaded for him to look at a specific thing. And now these redeemed saints of God fall on their faces and worship God. This is the day that they've been waiting for. It wasn't that that prayer, thy kingdom come, was just something that they, they mumbled thoughtlessly. They had been yearning for the day that it would be fulfilled. And now that day's come, and they rejoice over the answer to prayer. They give thanks to the Lord God Almighty, the master, divine, ruler of everything. You might be surprised to find that word almighty actually isn't used that often in the New Testament, outside of Revelation. I think the only other time in the New Testament it's used is when Paul's writing in his second letter to the church at Corinth, but I, I think there's a specific reason why it's finding its way into John's vision in Revelation. This is in contrast to what the Roman emperors at the time John was writing, this is in contrast to what they would call themselves. I've been taking an opportunity lately to learn more about the history of the Roman Empire at this point during the New Testament times. I don't know that it's all that worthwhile to know, right? 
But the emperors such as Augustus and Tiberius and, and Nero, they labeled themselves with this word autocrator, which means it's smashing two words together, self and master. In other words, I'm my own master. I am my absolute ruler. I can do, I can tell myself what to do. But the term almighty here that John uses is not autocrator. It is like this newly invented word, pantocrator. And it doesn't mean I'm master of myself. This means I'm master of everything. And so it gets translated well as almighty, but it is a not so subtle jab at the Roman emperors and all the authorities of this wicked world. That when Christ comes to reign, all questions about authority and power will be answered. Because in the end of verse 17, you've taken to yourself your great power and you have reigned. You get this, the disciples of Jesus rejoice because Jesus has assumed power and will reign over the kingdoms of this world. Y'all, without a doubt, until the Lord Jesus comes, we are expected to be good citizens, right? To be salt and light in the communities that we're placed in, the countries that we're, we're citizens of. But our fondest hope has never been that some red wave would sweep over the nation on the second Tuesday in November. Our hearts should be preoccupied with the Lord Jesus assuming authority over all nations when he comes. Isn't that what he taught us to even pray and ask for? Your kingdom come. Now, if you followed along with John's vision that the wicked world routinely rejects the judgments of God and have clung to their sinful desires, you might already expect that not everybody is thrilled that King Jesus has come to reign. And so look at verse 18. The king's judgments are certain. The nations were angry. And your wrath has come in the time of the dead that they should be judged and that you should... Give reward unto your servants, the prophets, and to the saints, and to them that fear your name, small and great, and should destroy them which destroy the earth. Along with the biblical promises of Christ's return to reign over the earth, the word has also given us clear expectations that his reign is not going to be universally welcomed by everyone. King David himself wrote about this in Psalm 2. Psalm 2 pictures this day and it begins, why do the heathens, uh, I'm sorry, why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast their cords away from us. So David saw a future when the nations, plural, would be enraged and conspire together to reject the rule of the Lord and his anointed or his Messiah is literally what that means. Because they see the authority of Jesus not as a cause for rejoicing, but as a cause for rebellion. They see the authority of Jesus as 
Well, they use the word bonds and cords, right? We want to take his bonds and his cords and cast them away from us. Those are instruments of, of constraint of being tied up. They don't want to be free from sin. They want to be set free in order to sin. And so John sees this vision in his day too in verse 18. The nations were angry. John MacArthur notes this term, quote, suggests a deep-seated ongoing hostility. This is not just a momentary emotional fit of temper, but a settled burning resentment against God. And although we're not at that point in Revelation yet, it is exactly this kind of burning resentment which will lead to their destruction at the Battle of Armageddon. Back in Psalm 2, God's response to this rage, David describes it was God will will laugh. He'll hold them in derision. He'll answer them in his wrath. Here John says, despite the nation's anger, your wrath has come. Later we'll see, just like the, the seventh seal contained these seven trumpets that are now sounding, This seventh trumpet, when it sounds, initiates these seven bowls or vials of God's wrath to be poured out on the earth. The king's judgments are certain, but don't forget that that word judgment means more than just his pouring out of wrath. Judgments can also be positive judgments. Listen to this verse again, verse 18. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come in the time of the dead that they should be judged, and that you should give reward unto your servants, the prophets, and to the saints, and to them that fear your name, small and great, and should destroy them which destroy the earth. There's both negative and positive judgments there in verse 18. In fact, there's four categories listed to describe the positive judgments toward the people of God. They're called God's servants, the prophets. And this certainly includes the Old Testament prophets, the way we would think who declared God's word, even in the face of deadly opposition. Those prophets were often called the servants of God. But it's, more, it's likely more encompassing than that. Starting as far back as the prophet Moses and continuing all the way through the two witnesses at the beginning of this chapter, all those who declare the word faithfully will receive a a prophet's reward in the words of Jesus. There's also this term to the saints, and that's an even more inclusive group. This has nothing to do with those individuals whom Roman Catholicism or other groups label as saints. Saint is not a term that means super-Christian. The word saint means holy ones. That is not those who are holy in themselves or in in and of the things that they've done, but those who have encountered the holy God and they try to live holy because he is holy. This is just a term for saved folks. And so Daniel, as he wrote about this day in Daniel 7.18, he says, 
The saints of the Most High will take the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. This is what a reward this is. Another positive term that's used is them that fear your name. Do you fear God? You'd better. For the wicked world who refuses to repent of their sins and trust him for salvation, (coughs) you ought to have terror at the idea of being judged by God. And his judgments are certain. But this term here, them that fear your name, is different. It's fear in the sense of reverential awe. And it it is always a a struggle to try to explain this and make it clear because it is fear nonetheless. Maybe one of my favorite ways this has been explained that I've heard is it's like a, a fear of a child for their father, a father who they love and they know loves them. Right? There's still fear at the prospect of the Father's commands being broken, but this kind of fear, this reverential awe, sends them running to the Father as opposed to sending them running away from the Father. We fear Him, and yet we are confident in His love for us. And in verse 18, the last positive that's mentioned is both small and great. That is a term that's very common to Revelation. It's used several times as an all-inclusive term. The judgments of God extends to all people no matter their standing in this world order. Or let me say it this way. You will never rise to a point where your greatness is going to overshadow this day but you'll also never be so small that you're overlooked at the coming of Christ for in his kingdom. The king's judgments are certain for all those who love him and fear him and live for him and proclaim his word. There are rewards, but John ends this again at the end of verse 18 by saying there's destruction for them which destroy the earth. Listen. I've heard this used as a warning to protect the environment. This is not about the Environmental Protection Agency or any other such thing here. Although we should be good stewards of God's creation, this destruction of those who destroy the earth is a warning about the wrath that's coming for all those who follow Satan. Remember, Satan is the destroyer. His destruction is certain, and the destruction of all who follow him is certain. And so we've seen the the king is coming, the king's servants rejoice, the king's judgments are certain. Finally see the king's power is evident. Verse 19, the temple of God was opened in heaven. And there was seen in his temple the ark of his testament, and there were lightnings and voices and thunderings, and an earthquake and great hail. Back in the book of Exodus, after delivering the Hebrews from slavery in Egypt, God brought them to the base of Mount Sinai in order to give them the Ten Commandments and the the rest of the law. And he warned them at that point, don't come up the mountain. If you come up the mountain... 
God will destroy you when you come into his presence. And to give sort of reality to that warning, many of the same kinds of phenomena were seen at the Mount Sinai as are listed in verse 19. Uh, lightnings and, and voices and thunderings and earthquakes. Right? The whole point is it was not a welcoming sight. And now something similar is happening in reverse. There are these warnings and signs of certain destruction. But the question in Revelation 11 is not whether or not you are going to come up to God and approach him. The point of Revelation 11, right, it's, it's not don't come up here. In Revelation 11, it is the time has come. The Lord Jesus is coming down there. You are going to be in his presence. But that's not all that John sees. There's a, a temple of God in heaven open, and in that temple he could see the, the ark of his testament. Someday we should probably do a study of the tabernacle and the temple in the Old Testament. Not this morning. But just for the sake of simplifying it for a minute, the writer of Hebrews says that that Old Testament temple and tabernacle was, quote, a copy and shadow of heavenly things. That is, what was built on earth in the tabernacle and temple was a picture of what truly exists in heaven. And some of those things, especially like access to the art of the covenant, right? It's inside the Holy of Holies. It's behind that thick curtain so you can't just come up to it. It was strictly off limits, right? Think about this. If the wrong person entered into the Holy of Holies and, and came into the presence of the Ark of the Covenant, they would die. You can't just presume that kind of access to the presence of God. But now John says in verse 19, the temple of God was opened. Even the Ark of the Testament, the Ark of the Covenant was, was clearly seen. You remember when the Lord Jesus shed his blood and died on the cross, that veil, that temple in, in the, uh, that, that veil, that curtain in the temple that blocked the Ark of the Covenant was torn in two from top to bottom. It symbolized that through the blood of Jesus, through the sacrifice that he just made, only through his blood was there safe access to the presence of God. And so now verse 19 is describing, if I understand it right, at the time of Jesus' reign on earth, there is access. And it is not optional access, right? I'm coming down there. The temple is open. The ark is exposed. The world is standing before it. The expectation is that the judgments of God are certain so that you either have access and safety through the blood of King Jesus or you have every reason to expect destruction and wrath because God himself is coming to earth and you cannot stand in his presence except by faith in his son. This is all the more reason to, this morning, repent of your sins and embrace the Lord Jesus as your savior. This day it is, is coming, it is a certainty, it has been it has been promised and foreshadowed and, and pointed to throughout all of Scripture. We've been taught to pray and appeal to God for this day to come. 
And that prayer is answered here. So that in this text, the Lord Jesus returns to reign as king over all the earth. And this brings rejoicing among his saints and it causes resentment among the wicked world and it still affirms the righteous purposes of God in all that he does. You will stand before him either to receive the reward of saints or to receive the destruction owed to the wicked. You will either meet this day with him as his friend or his enemy, but either way, he will be your king and he will deliver the judgment that is right. And having done so, the Lord Jesus will reign and he will reign forever forever.